0: Rebecca Larson, owner of TutorsDynasty.com, and you have found my podcast. Welcome back to those of you who have been here before and to those of you who are new to this podcast. Welcome. On my Facebook page, November was Catherine Howard month. I chose November as her month because it was the month when her life began to unfold. Every day I posted at least one thing about her, whether it be books, portraits, or articles, I tried to share it with you. If you're new to this podcast, you should know that at the beginning, or sometimes the end of each podcast, I take a moment to thank those who have become patrons of this podcast on Patreon. Becoming a patron is a great way to show that you support what I'm doing here. This is a hobby for me, and all money received goes right back into the show and website. If you're interested in becoming a patron, you can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, click Become a Patron, and for as little as a dollar per month, you can show how much you love what I'm doing here. At the end of this episode, I'll do a special shout out to my current patrons. Since last week's podcast, I have a new patron, Diane B. Thank you so much for supporting what I do. I couldn't continue without wonderful people like you supporting me. If you haven't noticed, or if you're new to it, my podcasts are less traditional than others out there. My episodes tend to be 30 minutes or less because, let's be honest, do you really have an hour to spend listening to me yammer on about the tutors? Another thing I do differently is that I don't number my podcast, just names. In my last podcast, I mentioned that I am now listed on iTunes podcasts as well. If you have an iPhone, you can open the podcast app and search Tutors Dynasty. Don't forget the S on Tutors. If you're an Android user, you can find me as well. I'm not as familiar with how it works for you, so if you know, please send me a message so I can relay the information in upcoming episodes. Along the way, I've discovered that Katherine Howard had a more interesting life than I had expected, very similar to what happened when I researched Jane Seymour. Once you go back and learn about Catherine's childhood, and understand her relationship with men, it gives you a better idea of how she got herself in hot water later on. She was too young to be queen. Her lack of education and her immaturity were what made her reckless. I fear that even if she had only been a lady-in-waiting at court that she would have eventually created drama. As we've discovered so far, it seemed to be in her nature. Now that that's out of the way. Let's get on with the show. Sit back, relax, turn up the volume and prepare to be transported back in time to the end of Catherine Howard's life. In part 3 of this series, we ended with some of those closest to Catherine Howard being interrogated. Things were not looking good. We hadn't even started with Catherine's confession yet. The Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk had returned to court to take part in private meetings regarding the investigation. Nobody at court realized it was all about the Queen. At this point in time, Catherine had no idea what was happening. She was confined to her rooms, and she no longer got word on the activity at court. There was no music and dancing, and she realized it had been forever since she saw her brother Charles, who had been a staple at court and even a secret love interest for the king's niece, Margaret Douglas. Little did Catherine know, but her brother had been banished from court, without reason. On the very day that King Henry wept after hearing the evidence against his wife, Catherine had begun to understand what was happening around her. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cromer, informed Catherine that she was to meet with a delegation of men to discuss a topic that had been brought to their attention, her possible pre-contract with Francis Darum. You may wonder what Catherine's reaction to this would have been. Well, she was defiant and denied everything and refused to talk about it. The men left, but it was Archbishop Cromer who came back several times in the next 24 hours to get a confession out of Queen Catherine. Cromer appears to have been a rather likable guy. People seem to trust him. Maybe it was his comforting brown eyes that pulled one in and made them relax enough to tell him their deepest secrets. But Cromner had his work cut out for him with Catherine. Her mood swings were out of control, to the point of hysteria, and Cromner needed the right approach. A quote by Cromner to the king quote, At my repair into the Queen's grace, I found her in such lamentation and heaviness as I never saw no creature, so that it would have pitied any man's heart in the world to have looked upon her. The King's pleasure was for Catherine to be treated mercifully, as long as she spoke the truth. Those words calmed the Queen and left her telling Cromner that she didn't deserve the King's kindness. Catherine's guilt over the king's kindness was evident when she said, quote, Alas, my lord, that I am alive, the fear of death grieved me not so much before, as doth know the remembrance of the king's goodness. For when I remember how gracious and loving a prince I had, I cannot but sorrow. But this sudden mercy, and more than I could have looked for, showed unto me, so unworthy, at this time, maketh mine offences to appear before mine eyes much more heinous than they did before. And the more that I consider the greatness of his mercy, the more I do sorrow in my heart, that I should so misorder myself against his majesty. In her second confession, she was much less dramatic in delivery, but still denied a pre-contract with Darum. She admitted that he talked about marrying her, but that she didn't believe that she had ever agreed with it, or spoke of it. When she spoke of the carnal knowledge between herself and Darum, she didn't come right out and say, yes, we slept together, many times. She beat around the bush, so to speak, and said that many times he laid with her, sometimes with his doublet and hose, and a few times naked, but not so naked that he was completely naked. He may have had his hose pulled down. Now, that seems pretty naked to me, but I believe she was trying to minimize what had happened between them. Most things in Catherine's confession sound like she was desperate not to look guilty. She also wasn't afraid to throw everyone under the bus to save herself. She even changed her story. She now stated that Darum took her against her will and that she was not a willing participant. In the next letter that Catherine wrote to the king, she admitted her faults and looked for forgiveness, or maybe leniency. In the letter, she says, Now the whole truth being declared unto your majesty, I most humbly beseech you to consider the subtle persuasions of young men and the ignorance and frailness of young women. I was so desirous to be taken unto your grace's favor and so blinded by desire of worldly glory that I could not nor had grace to consider how great a fault it was to conceal my former faults from your majesty, considering that I intended ever during my life to be faithful and true unto your majesty ever after." From this letter, we can see that Catherine was merely talking about her time as a ward in the Dowager Duchess's home. Nothing to do with Culpepper. Yet. She left her fate in the king's hands. The queen's normally noisy apartments were noisy no more. While she still had her staff on hand to assist her, she was still favoring Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, above all others. After all, she knew all her secrets about Culpepper. Rochford promised to be torn with wild horses rather than betray the Queen. Unfortunately, Catherine was not so loyal. When the opportunity presented itself, she threw Rochford under the bus to make herself look like the victim. A couple of days later, there were discussions on when to remove the Queen's staff from her service. Catherine was ordered to be sent to Sion Abbey, where she would have been given the respect and service required of a Queen. The Privy Council noted that she shall have four gentlewomen and two chambers at her choice, save that my Lady Baynton shall be one whose husband shall have the government of the whole house and be associated with the almoner. Catherine's half-sister, Isabel Lee, was Lady Baton, and would be there until the end. Some have suggested that Isabel and her husband may have sent reports of the Queen's behavior back to the Privy Council because Isabel was later granted land by Henry VIII. For unknown reasons. The gift is deemed suspicious because it was unusual for a family member of one under suspicion to receive gifts. Catherine's brother was merely sent away and banished from court. The question remains, why would Isabel receive a gift when all others in her family were disgraced? It wasn't long before Francis Darham was desperate to make himself look more innocent. In order to clear his name or receive a more lenient punishment, he told the men that Thomas Culpepper had succeeded him in the queen's affections. This statement opened a can of worms that I don't believe any of the council members expected. At this point, the Privy Council was only aware of her past aggressions. Now they would learn what she had done since becoming queen. A few days later, the queen was visited by Cromner, Norfolk, Southampton, Sussex, Hertford, Lord Russell, and five other men of the Privy Council who quizzed her on three late-night meetings she allegedly had with Thomas Culpepper during the Summer Progress. Catherine responded by placing all the blame on her loyal servant, Lady Rochford. She claimed that Rochford had instigated the entire thing and wouldn't let it be. Eventually, the Queen did admit to late-night meetings with Culpepper at Lincoln, Pontefract, and York. That didn't stop her from saying that she wished Rochford to more closely chaperone the meetings with Culpepper, at one point telling Rochford, "'For God's sakes, madam, even nearer us.'" The walls were beginning to close in around Catherine and her naughty doings. Jane Boleyn, Catherine Tilney, and Margaret Morton were some of the most important women yet to be questioned. On the 13th of November, Catherine Tilney was questioned whether the queen went out of her chamber late at night while at Lincoln, where she went, and who went with her. Tilney said that the queen went two nights to Lady Rochford's chamber, which was up a little pair of stairs by the queen's chamber. She explained that she and Margaret Morton went with the queen to Rochford's chamber, but were sent back. Margaret went up again soon afterward while Tilney went to bed. When Margaret came back to bed about two o'clock, Tilney said, Jesus, is not the queen abed bed yet? She replied, yes, even now. The second night, the queen sent the rest to bed and took Tilney with her to Rochford's chamber. Tilney was not allowed inside the room but sat in a little place with Lady Rochford's woman and stated she could not tell who came into Lady Rochford's chamber. Tilney also explained how she had been sent with strange messages to Lady Rochford that she knew not how to utter them. She also said that recently at Hampton Court, she bade her to go to Lady Rochford and ask her when she should have the things she was promised and she answered that she would bring word herself the following day. The story was beginning to unfold for those involved in the investigation. They were beginning to get a glimpse into what was happening when nobody was paying attention. On the same day that Tilney was questioned, so was Margaret Morton. Morton said that she never mistrusted Catherine until she saw the glance that the queen gave Culpepper while at Hatfield. She claimed that the look was one that she believed there was love between the two of them. While in progress, the Queen's behavior had become more and more suspicious to the ladies that served her. It wasn't just notes without seals and glances at young men and cryptic messages, but also the fact that she had begun to lock her bedchamber to everyone except Rochford. Lady Rochford, when examined, said that she had not heard or seen anything from the other end of the room when she chaperoned the Queen and Culpepper. She did, however, mention that the night at Lincoln, that she and the Queen were at the back door waiting for Culpepper at 11 p.m. when one of the watchmen came with a light and locked the door, shortly after Culpepper came in, saying he and his man had picked the lock. Rochford eventually said that she thought Culpepper had known the Queen carnally during the progress. When Thomas Culpepper was eventually interviewed, he recalled both the Queen and Lady Rochford as equal partners in the crime. He claimed that he understood the late-night meetings that they had would not appear with the purest intent, but that he had not committed treason. He had not slept with the Queen. However, he did say that he intended and meant to do ill with her, and that likewise, the Queen was so minded with him. Now you may ask, why is it considered treason to sleep with the Queen? Well, the easiest answer is that it would throw a wrench in the act of succession. If she became pregnant, there would be no way to know if the child was the king's or her lover's. What Culpepper admitted to was misprision of treason. He intended to commit the act, but had yet to follow through. After hearing Culpepper speak, Edward Seymour, Earl of Hartford, said, That is already too much. And Thomas was sent to the tower, and his house was inventoried. Good sign that he would not be leaving the Tower other than for his execution. Now back to Lady Rochford, the witness of the meetings with Culpepper. Rochford's story had changed too many times for the men to know the entire truth, but when compared with the testimonies of the Queen and Culpepper, they felt that they had enough evidence to arrest and later convict of treason. After being placed in the Tower of London, Lady Rochford had a mental breakdown. No wonder this was the place that those closest to her went to die. Her husband, her sister-in-law, and many others that she knew from court. After her mental break, Rochford was removed from her cell and placed in the care of Anne, Lady Russell, at the Russell House, a beautiful mansion located on the Strand. This was done because executing the insane was illegal at the time. This time at court, and in England for that matter, was a very delicate time. The council members had to keep as much secret as possible as to not embarrass England in the eyes of the governments abroad. If one of the ambassadors heard whispers of the Queen's infidelity, it would reflect poorly on King Henry as a man. Eventually on the 22nd, or some say the 23rd, of November, a proclamation was made at Hampton Court that declared Catherine stripped of her royal title as queen, Henceforth, she would only be referred to as Catherine Howard. Her counterparts, Thomas Culpepper and Francis Darum, entered their trial at the Great Hall of Guildhall on the 1st of December, 1541. Both men pleaded not guilty. During the trial, Catherine's deposition was read aloud. The confession that was chosen was the one where she stated that she was coerced by Darum and that she did not have a physical relationship with Culpepper. Culpepper claimed that he did not have a physical relationship with Catherine, but that he intended and meant to do ill with her. Those words were enough to condemn him. After the jury deliberation, they returned and stated that there was sufficient and probable evidence against the pair to warrant death. They were sentenced of treason and would be hanged, drawn, and quartered because of their low status. In the end, Culpepper was guilty of planning to sleep with the queen, while Darren was guilty of joining the queen's household in hope of knowing her carnally once again, and for withholding the queen's treasonous conduct from the authorities prior to her marriage to the king. In the meantime, while Catherine awaited her trial, 14 people that she knew were charged with misprison of treason and sent to the tower. They were Agnes Tilney, Dowager-Duchess of Norfolk, Countess of Bridgewater, Lord William Howard and his wife, Catherine Tilney, Alice Restful, Joan Bulmer, William Ashby, Anne Howard, Margaret Bennett, Lady Malin Tilney, Edward Walgrave, and Mary Hall, formerly Lascelles, the person who opened Pandora's box. For Culpepper, the sentence of being hanged, drawn, and quartered had been commuted to beheading, whereas Darum was not so lucky. Both men's executions were carried out at Tyburn Gallows on the 10th of December. Rousley writes in his chronicle that Culpepper and Darham were drawn from the Tower of London to Tyburn, and there Culpepper, after exhortation, made to the people to pray for him. He, standing on the ground by the gallows, kneeled down and had his head stricken off. And then Darham was hanged, membered, bowled, headed, and quartered. Culpepper's body was buried at the St. Pulcher's Church by Newgate their heads set on London Bridge. At some point after Christmas, after the king's divorce from Catherine was finalized, word came down from the commons that Catherine Howard and Jane Boleyn would be sent to the tower. When Catherine was informed that she would have a trial, she politely declined the offer. She had confessed that she was sinful and deserved death. On the 10th of February, a barge arrived at Sion Abbey to bring Catherine to the tower as was expected. Also in the tower was her partner in crime, Lady Rochford, who appears to have regained her sanity. The night before her execution, Catherine Howard made her final confession to a clergyman by the name of John White. She took God and his angels to be her witness, upon salvation of her soul, that she was guiltless of that act of defiling the sovereign's bed. Afterwards, she requested the block be brought to her room. You see, Catherine had heard the stories of Cromwell's botched execution as well as Lady Salisbury's. She wished to make sure she did everything right so her execution was swift. That night, she practiced, over and over. On the chilly morning of the 13th of February, 1542, Catherine was escorted to a scaffold that was on the same site as her cousin Anne Boleyn's in May 1536. She did not receive the private execution she had requested, but it was held within the tower walls to reduce the number of spectators. Catherine's final words were not fully recorded, however, a London merchant by the name of Otwell Johnson reported afterwards that she died well. What is known is that she spoke of Christ's redemption to all who believed, and urged the onlookers to learn from her mistakes. There was no talk of love, nor did she admit to being an adulterer. Her death was swift, one swing of the axe, and it was all over. Author Gareth Russell debunks Catherine's final words, quoted as, I die a queen, but I would rather die the wife of Culpepper. He points out that it came from a fictitious account that also claimed that she was interrogated by the dead Thomas Cromwell. Chabwe wrote in a letter that the king has wonderfully felt the case of the queen, his wife and that he has shown greater sorrow and regret at her loss than at the faults, loss, or divorce of his preceding wives. In fact, I should say that this king's case resembles very much of the woman who cried more bitterly at the loss of her tenth husband than she had cried at the death of the other nine put together, though all of them had been equally worthy people and good husbands to her, the reason being that she had never buried one of them without being sure of the next but that after the tenth husband, she had no other one in view, hence her sorrow and lamentations. Such is the case with the king, who, however, up to this day, does not seem to have any plan or female friend to fall back upon. From very humble beginnings as the daughter of the not-so-successful Edmund Howard, to her end as Queen of England, Catherine's life is told like a children's story teaching the reader to learn from the mistakes of others. As I've said before, Catherine Howard was too young and too immature to be thrust into the life that she was ill-prepared for. Thank you so much for joining me in this four-part series on Catherine Howard. I'm hoping this helped to open your eyes to who Catherine was as a person and to help you understand her a little better. Throughout this series, I've referenced Gareth Russell several times. This is because I've only recently read his book from 2016 called Young and Damned and Fair about the life of Katherine Howard. This book was a real eye-opener for me. His research on her was so thorough that I was able to come to my own conclusion on who I believe she was. Other books out there tend to push their viewpoint on Catherine, while I'd rather decide for myself, wouldn't you? I know I promised at the end of this podcast that I would list all of the patrons on Patreon who are supporting me, but instead I am going to include it in the original podcast post. So please check there so you can see all the wonderful people who have supported this podcast. Thank you so much, and until next time.